Today we're going to look at uh, briefly one of the most short books, or the shortest book, I should say, one of the shortest books, to be accurate, in the Bible, the book of Philemon. Everybody say Philemon. All right, and if uh, by chance you grew up with an alternate pronunciation, everybody say Philemon. Okay, that's how I remember it from high school when my teacher, Mr. Mike Dye, played what was called the Bible rap, the Bible rap every Monday through Friday morning, literally the whole semester. And so I have ingrained in my memory the Bible rap from my freshman year of high school. Isn't that something? You want to hear the Bible rap? You're the only one that wanted to hear the Bible rap, Art, so I think I'm going to pass in this service. Go for it. All right, so just for fun, just for fun, I'll tell you that if you're a millennial, this was not even the rap music of the 90s because it was about a decade old when I learned it. So it's probably from the 80s, and it's being presented to you this morning by a non-rapper, okay? Just remember that. This is how it went. The Bible is the holy book. Tammy, can I have your sunglasses for this? Do I look a little hipper now with these on? All right. So here we go. The Bible is the holy book. Everybody do this with me. The Bible is the holy book. So let's open it up and take a look. We got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, doom, doom, doom. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Then we got Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd, Thessalonians. Tammy's the only one clapping. What's going on? First and second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, first and second Peter, first and second, third John, Jude to Revelation. The word's gonna save this nation. Roop, 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 roop. And that's how the Bible rap went. Okay, there you go. All right, better stick to preaching, huh? So the book of uh, Philemon comes uh, directly following the book of Titus, which we just finished last week in a three-week series. So why not go ahead while we're close by and see what this book has to teach us in a Sunday? And really, it's just an extension of, of Paul's thoughts. So if you see Philemon in your Bible, it kind of feels that way because it's a one-pager, 335 words. It's the equivalent of an essay, really. Um, So it's rare that we get to do an entire sermon series and a standalone sermon in the same Sunday. And that's what this is. That's what we're going to do. Philemon, what about him? Well, he was a Roman nobleman, a very wealthy man who lived in Colossae. And Paul, the apostle, led him to faith, brought him, introduced him to Jesus on a mission trip to that city. 
And Philemon was quite, again, astute. He had servants upon servants, and one of his servants happened to be named Onesimus. Everybody say Onesimus. Onesimus. Good. And he stole a bunch of stuff from Philemon, from his boss. Okay? Now, he then ran away, presumably, with the stuff to Rome, presumably so he wouldn't be caught in such a large city. And ironically, when he was caught, he ended up in the same prison as the Apostle Paul, who had converted his boss to Jesus and now had an opportunity to convert him. And indeed he did convert Onesimus, Onesimus the thief, became a Christ follower while in prison with the Apostle Paul, this minimum security type of scenario. So Paul sends him back to the city of Colossae with not only a letter, a longer letter, uh, comparatively speaking, that was called what? Eventually, Colossians. And also, really, even though it comes after the book of Titus, a postscript or a PS to the letter to the Colossians, and we call it Philemon, because it was addressed to Philemon. Colossians, the letter, Philemon, the PS. Now, no joke, what I'm about to tell you is completely true. Someone broke into our church last Sunday night, early Monday morning. And they took some things. And like Onesimus, they rounded up some odds and ends and ran out. And perhaps foolishly saw a police officer here last week and stopped in to one of the local businesses in this midtown building to ask about why the police officer was here and happened to, while taking a tour of the building, bump into me in the basement and ask me about why the police officers were here. So that kind of started um, some questions going on in my head, and then eventually the individual spoke with the police officers themselves and effectively turned Uh, him or herself in and so all is safe and secure but I just find it kind of interesting that we're studying a book about a sticky fingered man the same week that we encountered somebody with sticky fingers that's kind of 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 weird I guess you'd say and this former bandit not our former bandit but the former bandit in the text leaves Paul to confess his crime to his former employer to tell his former employer that he's now a Christian. And so Paul gives him these two letters uh, to carry. Were it up to us again, we'd probably have put uh, Philemon right after Colossians since they came together, but we didn't organize the Bible. Um, So this is where we begin in chapter 1 of Philemon. Really, there's only one chapter, so we might as well say Philemon 6 because there's no chapters and verses. So if you go to Bible Gateway and type in Philemon 6, you don't get the chapter. They'll take you directly to the verses, and we'll read through verse 19. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. 
And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. We could just preach on that. It's so sweet and good. Let me just repeat it. And I pray, Paul writes, that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Who had been ineffective in sharing their faith with Onesimus? Well, thus far, Philemon had. He had the same opportunity Paul had. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. In other words, Paul saying, I could play the apostle card here. I could demand something of you. After all, I am Paul. But instead, let me just ask you to do something for me. And then he continues on with his request in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became, spiritually speaking, in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So an interesting side note, the Onesimus name actually means useful. How cool is that? How almost prophetic is that? How providential is that? I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Sounds like he and Paul, Onesimus and Paul became Great friends, very close. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you received me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will Repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. What are we kind of chewing on here? What are we taking in? One interpretation might be that what we're reading, and it sounds to me, is a masterful laying on of guilt by the Apostle Paul. A guilt trip. And he says, if if we might put this in uh, more casual terms, hey Philemon, while you live luxuriously, 
with servants, might I remind you that I, an old man, am chained up, bound for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've now led one of your servants, Onesimus, to Jesus. He's really feeling a call toward ministry, and I could really use his help, I guess, but if you want to take him back, I I guess you certainly can. And by the way, might I remind you, Philemon, that I led you to Christ, and without me, you'd be on your way to hell, to be honest. So if you could just find it somewhere in your heart to take Onesimus back in, I'll pay his debt when I come back. But it's totally up to you. It's totally up to you, Philemon. And then, and then just to kind of give a little evidence for that tone and attitude that I just kind of summarized the text in, look at verses 21 and 22. This is kind of funny. Confident of your obedience, <laughs> I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. In verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Um, In other words, oh yeah, I'm I'm also going to be there soon. My term's expiring here, and I'd like to stay at your place, and it would be really, really awkward if you don't accept Onesimus when we're together again. This would be a great opportunity. We have a missionary here this morning to announce a new ministry of host homes for missionaries. These are kind of on this theme of hospitality in the text this morning and graciousness. Paul might as well uh, have added, and and don't forget Philemon, this is going to make it into the Bible one day and going to be read by every Christian worldwide. So you better pay attention here and make the right decision. Hey, no pressure. Philemon. And of course, Onesimus, the former thief turned Christ follower, is the one who delivers the letter to his former boss. So you've got to picture him just kind of standing there as it's read and grinning. Can I have my job back? What do you say, Uncle Phi? So you get the scenario. Before we do anything else, I I think it's important that we... um, There's an interesting relationship in the text this morning that um, is kind of controversial, and it's that between a master and a slave. Um, The obvious question that Christianity has in general mishandled over the years is, uh, does the Bible condone slavery? Is that really God's desire? And it appears that there's some kind of ownership of people. It does in what is represented here. So is it it possible that the apostle Paul is legitimizing slavery and wanting this guy to have his job back? It's a great question. I think it's sad that some Christians throughout history have interpreted it it that way but the understanding I I think is flat out wrong 
Um, and I want to give you a few things to consider. First, that word bondservant does not mean slave as we would use today to refer to a human being that has been coerced or forced into laboring by another human being. It's not what it means. Um, we read the Bible absolutely explicitly condemning slavery elsewhere. Exodus twenty one sixteen says, for example, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Or in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10, Paul puts slave traders actually in the same uh, category as he, as he does those who kill their parents. Do we have that one, guys? 1 Timothy 8, 1 through 10. Thank you. So it can't be that the Bible is condoning slavery. This is more what we're reading about, what what we might call indentured servitude. It is somebody who is broke and has nothing else to sell to pay off their own debt. So the only thing they have that is of value is themselves their own grit, their own elbow grease, their own labor. So they submit themselves to the care of another and and in paying off their debt by, by working. I'm not saying the indentured servitude model was a good system. I'm not even saying that was a part of God's plan. What I'm doing is distinguishing it from slavery. Second, the New Testament undermines the entire premise of any form of slavery. We need to know that as Christians. We need to have an answer. We need to have a defense. The entire New Testament ethic, is it or isn't it, love others as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Masters and servants become brothers and sisters. Someone put it this way. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Someone else said there's one race and that's the human race. There's one class and that's that of the sinner. We're all in that bundle. And there's one hope. And there's one Lord. And that is Jesus Christ. Just a third thought on slavery in the Bible. Historically, I should say, God used the church to undo it. You may not know this. Um, Anybody ever seen Amazing Grace, the movie that uh, features the historical figure Wilbur uh, Force? Um, It was uh, starring uh, Heath Ledger before he did Batman as the Joker. Am I right in that? He starred in that, I believe, if I can recall correctly. Uh, Nobody knows. 
amazing movie. If you have not seen Amazing Grace, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful movie. And um, it's very well done. It's uh, top class um, and just an, an amazing message. You should rent it um, ASAP. Um, so the thought is that today the West is guilty for African-American slavery in particular. And that thought is perpetuated, and I will concede that it was absolutely one of the most horrific seasons in our history as a country. Um, here's what, however, a, an African-American scholar named Thomas Sowell kind of brings to the equation that I think is helpful to remember also. The European slave trade, while, while it did um, imprison 11 million people, in that time in history, was outdone by what was happening on the Arabian Peninsula, which was double the amount of victims to slavery. His point, this African-American scholar, was that it was a universal problem, not just a European problem that worked its way into the United States. And Sowell points out, I believe correctly, it was the preachers of the Great Awakening, including men like John Wesley and including statesmen like William Wilberforce, who began to plant seeds of the gospel that undermined the institution of racism and slavery. And so roughly a hundred years before the Civil War of the 1800s came the fervent gospel preaching of the Great Awakening laying the seedbed in the middle 1700s. It was the church that began the process of seeing that monopoly crumble. For God's glory, amen, that is something we should be proud of as a church of Christ followers. And indeed, it's what Paul is doing here in Philemon. He says in verse 8, I could command you to do what is required. In other words, I could drop I'm Paul on you and order you around. But here's what I'd rather do. Just like William Wilberforce will do years later, and just like John Wesley will preach, I'd rather press the gospel, Philemon, into your heart so that you'll obey its implications and not do this because I'm telling you so. Because if it's personal, if you're moved by the Holy Spirit, that's a permanent change. If I issue a decree, that's temporary. So what did Philemon do? In conclusion, how did he respond to Paul's request? What happened to Onesimus? The truth is, we don't know. The Bible never tells us. But, and I think it's an important 
but to consider the letter made it into the Bible. And we know that it was a private letter, which means there was how many copies? One copy. And to get wider circulation, Philemon is the one who'd have to initiate that. I doubt he would have said, hey, here's the letter the apostle Paul wrote that I completely ignored. Scribes, make a couple dozen copies, quickly. He wouldn't have done that if his heart wasn't moved to comply, not with Paul's request, but what he felt like was the Holy Spirit's request. Evidently, he did exactly what Paul urged. He forgave Onesimus of his debts. He released him and then perhaps chose to circle the letter as a picture of this new gospel world order and what the gospel was starting to do through the local church. And listen to this. This is so cool. Only a few decades later did one of the early church fathers, Ignatius, point out that and refer to an early elder or bishop of Ephesus, another major biblical city to whom a letter was written by the Apostle Paul. Guess what the elder's name was? An uncommon, even peculiar name. It was Onesimus. Many scholars, based on the timeline, assert, some strongly so, that a thief became an elder by the grace of God. Here's what this means for us. We want to see our Philemons become radically generous participants in the mission of God. Businessmen, businesswomen who are sincere in their faith, maybe even who attend church regularly, but have yet to look inside and ask hard questions about how God wants to use them for his purposes. To serve in a way that costs them something. To give in a way that costs them something. It's not that they're evil. The Philemon's. It's that their life thus far has revolved around building their own kingdom and not God's kingdom. How can I leverage, God might have them ask now, my life not for my own kingdom but for God's kingdom? 
There's a couple in, in North Carolina that attends a church I'm familiar with that was absolutely determined. It's, it's a crazy thought. I don't think this is prescriptive uh, for all of us. I think it's descriptive of their personal family situation, what they felt like God was calling them to. But they told their pastor that they were going to increase their giving by 5% each year until they bled, until they could not do it anymore. In 2013, they achieved 20%. In 2014, they didn't make it quite to 25%. And their pastor asked, how high are you going to let this go? I'm concerned for you. And they said, if we can get our business to the right place, we feel called to give 100% of our annual income to God's kingdom work, to his mission. Now, that kind of radical generosity is not for all of us. But the thought ought to be, our mentality ought to be, I want to leverage more and more of what God's given me, my time, my talent, my treasure for his purposes and not my purposes. So businessmen and women, I urge you to be Philemon's, to get engaged. Jesus did not save you to keep you on the sidelines. He saved you to evangelize your Onesimus. If that's how you say that in the plural form. I don't know. Onesimai. <laughs> Second, that hurt. We want to see Onesimuses here at the mill. What we mean to say is that we want to see slave men and women become freed men and women. Slavery in the Bible is often a picture of what? Somebody say it. What does it represent? Yeah, our sin. Many of us are enslaved. We are proverbial Onesimuses. Has your sin, whatever it is, rendered you useless to the kingdom. Remember what Paul said to to Philemon? Onesimus, he's not just useful for your labor. In other words, God's got a plan for that boy. How could you not have recognized that? He worked for you. I recall Chris Lang's story. Robin came to the church with her kids. He wouldn't darken the door. They told the story publicly via video a year ago. Otherwise, I wouldn't share it. But their marriage was on the rocks. Chris was mocking in his circle of friends, the church. And because God is more compassionate than us, I think he just said, One day, out of the goodness of his heart, Chris, he's not useful just for labor. I've got a plan for that boy. I'm going to save that boy. And my dad, who was here and met Chris in year one of, of 
Northridge Church Stratford, which became the Mill Church. We prayed for Chris. He was drywaller. That's all we knew him as. And happened to be here roughly seven years later on the day that Chris was baptized and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And my dad just stood there and wept. We've got more Onesimuses. It's not just Chris. Chris and his wife now sit back there. They were just there this morning serving in the first service together at that sound table. Chris and his wife participated in a way in the bold initiative, a story we've also told, where they put off a major renovation to their home. They've got a couple hundred bats living in their ceiling so they could see this church built. They're Onesimuses. Their names mean not useless, but useful, according to God. So here's my question. Where are our other Onesimuses? What rebellious teenager in this room is the Mill Church's next youth pastor? What high school band student in this room is the Mill Church's next worship leader? Who in here has yet to submit their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and see his purposes begin to unfold? God has a plan for you. You're his boy or his girl. You're his son. You're his daughter. This isn't the end of it. The enslaved become empowered by the Holy Spirit when he lives inside of us. So, Father, I pray Lord, that you would break through the most ruthless, greedy, philomonic hearts in this room. And I pray, Lord, that you would transform even the most obstinate of Onesimus's. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would be reminded that there is no Jew, nor Greek, slave, nor free, black, nor white, male, nor female. There are no hierarchies. There are no pedestals. We are all equally undeserving recipients of your grace. And for that, we're grateful. And for that, we can do life together and love one another and serve one another as a church family that you died for and intend to use to break barriers of division in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.